You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 79. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so much for giving me your time and attention today. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Otherwise, you can go to Anchor FM, Warrior Priest Podcast, and click the support button. Or you can subscribe to Warrior Priest at wordpress.com and get it sent directly to your email every time a new episode comes out. That being said, today on the podcast, I'm going to go back to a book that I have not read for a while. I think I read it on the podcast many moons ago. It's entitled Conversations with Major Dick Winters, Life Lessons from the Commander of the Band of Brothers, Colonel Retired Cole C. Kingseed, USA. Cole conducted a series of interviews with Dick Winters later in Dick's life, leading up, I think, actually to his death. And it is Dick's ruminations on various topics, specifically leadership and what it means to be a leader in a time of war, in a time of conflict. And the chapter that I wanted to zero in on today then is chapter seven of the book. It's entitled Courage. And it goes like this. Lord Moran writes, the soldier is alone in his war with terror, and we have to recognize the first signs of his defeat that we may come in time to his rescue. Now, turning to page 122 then, Dick Winter says, first things first, moral courage. Moral courage is a far rarer commodity than physical courage. In that, I agree with Patton, General George Patton. I have known many officers who were physically brave, but who did not have the intestinal fortitude to organize the chaos around them. Those officers who were most vocal about what they were going to do to the enemy often were the first to fall apart when the chips were down. Fear is not only debilitating, but its existence also destroys the cohesion of a command. It is the responsibility of a commander to identify the limits of courage, break the paralysis of fear, and motivate his soldiers to continue with the mission. Courage conquers fear. Think about that. Short, to the point, courage conquers fear. But what kind of courage are we talking about? Not physical courage, but moral courage. The courage to push through fear and anxiety, to push past what appear to be your physical limitations in the moment, especially in moments of conflict where there is a high stress threshold and every instinct in your body is telling you run the other way. Something that I've done the last several weeks is go back and watch Band of Brothers and then The Pacific, which I highly recommend if you've never watched them. They are amazing documents, regardless of their historical accuracy. From a directing acting and narrative standpoint, I think Band of Brothers and the Pacific are masterpieces of cinema. But also then what I would recommend is after watching Band of Brothers and then watching the Pacific, go watch Generation Kill. 
which is an entirely different narrative about conflict. It's about the invasion of Iraq, the first invasion of Iraq. And I like to do this whenever I watch Band of Brothers or the Pacific or both, is to watch them and then go watch Generation Kill, which again, exceptional direction and acting, exceptional narrative, but the difference in generations, the difference in the conflict, the difference in, in how soldiers react to stress and how narratively this plays out within the context of these stories about these soldiers. It's a remarkable juxtaposition to me, how times have changed, how the theater of war has changed, how kinetic warfare has changed. But then at the root of that is still, whether it's World War II in Europe or in the Pacific or post-first Iraqi invasion, Desert Storm, all the way through going back in, in 2001, 2002, 2003, to the present tense. The question of moral courage, physical courage, that I don't think changes. The theater may change. The nature of kinetic warfare may change. The standards for leadership may change. But courage has always been the same. We can go back to prehistory and prehistoric warfare and prehistoric conflict. And we can even read the epics of Gilgamesh. We can read about conflict in the Old Testament in the scriptures. We can go back and we can read Beowulf and the Arthurian legends. We can read about the Hagakure and the Book of Five Rings by Musashi. Courage and the question of courage never changes. Fear never changes. Because in my opinion, I don't believe that humans change. We adapt. We adopt different practices, different rituals, different traditions. But at root, emotionally, we don't, we don't change. How we interface with fear, with conflict, with cohesion and command, that doesn't change. The circumstances may change, but I don't believe that we have ever changed because that's why we're still talking about these topics and why they've been written about in every generation and why many come to the exact same conclusions in every generation. I think that's really why, it's one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast in the first place was discovering these patterns and these questions that kept occurring generation after generation in different primary sources that I was researching or reading. Because fear doesn't change. Courage that conquers fear, that doesn't change. How we respond to stress and stimuli, that doesn't actually change. The technology may change, like I said. The circumstances may be different. The theater may be different. But at root, our emotions and how we react, how we interface and engage with others, that doesn't change, at least in my opinion. So then Dick Winters has asked the question, did you personally experience fear? Did fear ever grip your outfit? And Dick says, I suspect every soldier at one time or another experiences a degree of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the willingness to rise above fear and do the things that you know need to be accomplished. 
I think that's key before we read the rest of Dick's answer to the question about fear is that you have to push through fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's, it's to rise above that. But I think the key word there is need. I don't want to do this. I need to do this. I don't want to go through this experience, but I need to go through this experience. And I think this is key. I think it's important for us to one, have a clearly defined mission. Why am I doing this? What are the mission parameters? What is the end state? What am I striving for? Do I know the why of this mission, of this task, this cause that I'm a part of or that I've set for myself? Am I clear in my own mind? Excuse me. Is this something that I want to do? Or is this something that I need to do? Is this a matter of survival or a matter of meaning? Because often in my experience, what I want to do is a question of meaning and identity. I buy this, I engage in this relationship, I pursue this or that interest because it gives my life a fuller and richer meaning to me personally. It helps define my identity for me personally. And so therefore, it's something that I want to do because it's meaningful. On the other hand, there are things that I need to do because they're a matter of survival. I need to eat. I need to take care of my family. I need to provide shelter for them. I need to provide safety for them. I need to protect and defend them. So what do I need to do to accomplish that task? To reach the end state, the positive end state, the successful end state then of this mission. So there are things that I need to do that take precedence then over everything else that I want to do. Because my survival and the survival of my family is more important, it's needful, than the things that I may want to do, that I may enjoy doing, that may be challenging to me, yes. But they're there to give me a sense of meaning, a sense of identity, a sense of place in relation to history, in relation to my neighbors, my teammates, and other people. But if you can distinguish between what is a want and what is a need, I think then it'll be clearer, you'll be more sober in your judgment about why you have to rise above this thing that scares you or why you can back away from it. Because there are things that scare me when I pursue something that gives my life greater meaning to me, whatever that may be. I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of messing it up. I'm afraid that I'm wasting my time. And therefore, I can judge that and say, you know, it's not really imperative that I go on this trip or that I say what I'm thinking or that I act out on this feeling. It's not imperative. But if it's needful, if I need to be aggressive in the moment, I need to be default aggressive for the sake of others, especially, then I need to figure out how do I rise above this fear that's inside of me, fear of the unknown, fear of, I don't know how this person's going to respond to this comment I'm about to make, this assertion. I don't know how my body is going to respond to this stress. I don't know how other people are going to respond when I engage in this mission. And I'm afraid because it's the unknown and I don't have control over the unknown. It's a mystery to me. It hasn't revealed itself yet. Is there a dragon, a monster hiding around the corner waiting to jump on me and devour me? 
Or is it a cuddly, fuzzy bunny rabbit? The fear is not in the revelation of what's waiting around the corner. The fear is the anticipation of what's waiting around the corner. I've talked about this in relation to fighting before. I've never been afraid when I'm in the fight, but I've been afraid leading up to the fight because the anticipation is what eats away at me. It attempts to destroy my confidence in my abilities, in my preparation, in my training, in my mindset, in my stamina, and my endurance. It's fear that's the dream killer. And so to rise above that fear, I know once I get to the fight, once I'm on the mat, once I'm in the arena, the fear will evaporate and there will just be me and my opponent. And after the fight, there will be no fear. There will be celebration. There will be uh, disappointment. There will be a time for critically breaking down what I did well, what I didn't do well, why I won, why I didn't win. But all of the fear for me is always the anticipation of the unknown. Because in the moment, you're in the moment. You're not thinking, you're not feeling, you're simply there. And you fall back on your training. You fall back on your habits, which is why it's so imperative, in my opinion, that you train yourself up for the mission. You prepare for the mission in anticipation that things are going to go wrong. Because in, in my experience, no matter how well I plan for a fight, for a trip, for uh, a class that I'm going to teach or a lecture I'm going to deliver from the stage, no matter how much I may try to anticipate the questions or the feedback or the response of the other person, it always goes sideways at some point. It always falls apart. There's always some wrinkle, something that happens that I couldn't have anticipated that tries to pull me out of the moment. But if I've trained myself up and prepared myself adequately for the lecture, for the class, for the fight, for the trip, when something goes wrong, when something goes sideways, when there's a hiccup or an obstacle, I don't panic. I don't freak out. I don't wilt. I simply adapt because I've prepared myself to adapt. I've prepared myself to rise above the moment and to overcome it, to push through it so that I can objectively attain the goal. So all soldiers, Dick says, hope that they will measure up the first time that they get into a fight. I certainly was no exception, but I believe I had prepared myself very well that once I came under fire, I instinctively knew, I instinctively knew what needed to be done. I think I was more apprehensive, particularly before D-Day, than I was afraid. Maybe apprehension is the first stage of fear. I'm not really sure. You have to remember that Easy Company was an elite unit, as were all the paratroopers. We had trained for nearly two years before we jumped into Normandy. I think I saw far more excitement in the eyes of my men than I did fear. After Brecourt, or Brecourt, however you want to pronounce it, we felt as if we were seasoned veterans, even though we knew worse days were ahead. And then that leads me to my next question, Dick. And this again is Cole now saying this, Cole Kingseed. In easy company, did you see much cowardice? Absolutely not, Dick Winters says. As the war went on, the bonds among the men actually strengthened. No one wanted to let his buddy down. 
I think we discussed that some soldiers like Joe Toy went AWOL in order to return to Easy Company because if he had remained in a hospital, he would have been transferred from the paratroopers. Unit cohesion and the fear of abandoning your friend are powerful incentives. Even at Bastogne, Bill Garnier risked his life. Is it Garnier? Yeah, Bill Garnier risked his life to save Joe Toy. Cowardice in Easy Company? Never. Does courage have limits then, Cole asks him. I suppose so, Dick says. Again, Steve Ambrose says that heavy artillery bombardment will make even the most seasoned veteran eventually break. I disagree. A leader has to overcome fear, convince himself that every enemy shell or bullet is not targeting him. The same is true in a company or a battalion. Leaders must ensure that strength and cohesion is a stronger force than fear. This is especially true in men who have been scarred by prolonged combat. Ambrose was correct when he titled the chapter in Band of Brothers, Breaking Point, as he described the horrendous artillery barrage that inflicted so many casualties on Easy Company in the Bois-Jacques. Company strength was below 50%, and many of the non-commissioned officers were killed or wounded. Without direct supervision by leaders, Easy Company, as well as the remainder of the battalion, could have easily been debilitated by an increased sense of mortality and fear. That is precisely why I made it a point to visit the front lines as often as possible. Soldiers need a sense that their commanders are in the game with them. Leadership by example is even more important in these situations. A leader has to overcome fear, convince himself that every enemy shell or bullet is not targeting him. One of the things that I've had to learn over the years, because we're all narcissists at heart, is that when someone says something that is unkind or disrespectful or condescending to me, it's not personal. More often than not, I just happen to be there and they were carrying around some emotional weight, usually resentment, anger, self-loathing. Something happened to them during the course of their day at work, at school, somewhere. And they've been carrying around this burden and they need to get it off of them. It's like a cross, a, a yoke on their shoulders. It's a heavy weight. It affects them emotionally, intellectually, even physically. And they just want to get it off of them. And quite often then, especially as a pastor, I just happened to be in their way, so they unloaded on me. And I had to learn through trial and error, failure and failure and success, that more often than not, they just wanted me to carry their sin away from them. They wanted me to carry their burden because they couldn't bear it anymore. I see the same thing in the gym, especially at night. People come to class at 5.30, 6.30, 7.30. They come in carrying a day's worth of burdens, the weight of the day, their family, their work, school. You can see it in their body language. Their shoulders are slumped. Their eyes are usually down. Sometimes they shuffle in. They're slow. Their gait is herky-jerky. Then they get on the mat and they're kind of quiet, not quite visiting with anybody, just kind of going through the motions of stretching. But then by the middle of class, depending on my attitude or the attitude of the other coaches, they're talking, they're laughing, they're sweating. Their shoulders are back, their chest is out, their eyes are up. 
They walk off the mat, they strut. They stride off the mat. Why? Because you made it not about them for an hour or two. You show them that they are worthy of other people's time and attention and that they are your teammate and you are their coach. And you set the tone then as the coach, as the instructor, even as the teammate. But especially as a leader, you, I believe, have to recognize, you have to read the body language. You have to look at their face and what it's communicating. You have to listen to how they speak and then adjust how you teach them that day, how you encourage them, how you instruct and and correct them in the techniques, how you spar with them. All of that goes into helping them overcome and let go of the burden that they bring into the gym with them. And so you have to convince yourself that what you're doing is not about you. It's about them. Helping them get out from and get untangled from the day and the burdens that have been placed upon them. And for me as a coach then, it's more important that I help them in their mindset and to develop a stronger, more disciplined mind and heart as far as controlling their emotions than it is teaching them the techniques. To me, the techniques in Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu are the vehicles that are going to take them from depression, hopelessness, despair, anxiety, fear, insecurity, to hope, courage, strength, discipline, all of those things that will raise them up out of fear and insecurity, out of anxiety and stress, out of depression and feelings of inadequacy. And I think that's something that a lot of coaches recognize and a lot of other coaches don't. You're not there for yourself. You're there to serve, to serve the students, to serve the other coaches and the gym owners, to serve your teammates. And that by serving them, by focusing on their well-being, you are focusing on your well-being because their well-being is your well-being. Their health is your health. So if I go into the gym, and I've done this before, I've talked about it. If I'm in a grumpy mood because something tweaked me the wrong way, or I'm just grumpy today, and I don't remind myself and take a, a sobriety check moment and realize it's a privilege and a gift to be able to do what I love to do and get paid to do it. And therefore, I need to be grateful. Not I want, I need to be grateful for the opportunities God's given me to not only do Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu, what I love, what makes me a better man, but I get to teach and instruct others in what I love. And I get to give to them all that I get from Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu so that they can learn what I've learned and then they can walk away having received what I've received. And it's the temptation is always there to focus in on yourself, to kind of curl in on yourself and just stare at your own belly button or your feet and only think about how you're being put out by having to show up and teach or train or engage this person in dialogue when you'd rather be at home playing video games or sitting on the back deck reading a book or out in the garden or going for a walk or whatever it may be or just training. (laughs) There's sometimes I get a text two, three hours before I'm going to the gym asking if I can cover a class for another coach. That's my time to train. I need that time for myself. 
But I'm asked. And therefore I say yes, because, well, what else can I say? It's not about me. And I go in and teach. And at this point, after almost six years of doing this, it's, I don't really have to prepare a lesson. I just go in and teach whatever's there. And I, again, I recognize what the students need to work on and we work on those things. But I recognize that going into the gym to work on myself is never really going into the gym to work on myself because it's only in relation to other people at the gym that I train with that I'm lifted up, that I am motivated and encouraged by others. It doesn't come from out inside of me out. It comes from outside of me into me. I'm receiving these things from others. And therefore, as a leader, as an instructor, as a teacher, as a pastor, as a parent, I recognize how imperative it is then as a leader, as someone who people look at as a leader, to first confront fear in your own heart. So that then when I interface and engage with others, that's not there. Because I don't believe it can be there. Because other people can see that. You're hesitant. You're nervous. You're not communicating effectively. So you recognize it's not about you. The responsibility is on you, but it's not about you. So then, like he says, soldiers need a sense that their commanders are in the game with them. So you don't stand above them and condescend toward them. You don't take every opportunity to remind your students that you're better than they are. And that's why you're the teacher, you're the lecturer, you're the coach. But instead, you put yourself out there in such a way that you share with your students, hey, I was exactly where you were at when I started or after two years or four years or whenever. I had the same struggles that you're going through. I felt the same emotions you're feeling right now. I was frustrated like you're frustrated. So let me share with you my experience and what happened and how I overcame, how I pushed through this, how I got to where I'm at today. So that hopefully you don't have to struggle through it the way that I did. Or to let you know when I was struggling through this, other people came to me and walked with me through this. They were the ones who were strong for me. They were the ones who helped carry me and walk with me through this struggle. That's how I got through it. So let me show up for you so that I can help you get through this too. And again, there's going to be times when you don't want to show up for people. You don't want to walk with them. You don't want to help carry their burdens, pick them up off the floor, because you got your life to live. There's things you need to do. There's things that you want to do. But you recognize that those who serve you, those who look to you as a leader, those who are there asking you, hey, You've got some experience in this area. You're ahead of me as far as the path goes. You ever gone through this? You ever felt this way? You ever thought these thoughts? And if you're in the game with them, they're grateful. They listen. They're benefited by your presence, and therefore you're benefited. But if you don't show up for them, if you treat them like they're lesser than you, like they're not worthy of your respect for whatever reason you concoct in your own mind, that's just ego. That's just the old, sinful, selfish person saying, you know what? You're lucky that I'm I'm here. You're lucky to have me. I am literally like a trophy that you get to, you can look at it. You can't touch it, but you can look at it. (laughs) You should be grateful that I'm here. That's just ego. That's just selfishness. 
And that, that has no place in leadership as far as I'm concerned. In fact, I think that's actually what defines a bad leader, a bad coach, a bad instructor, a bad teacher, bad pastor, bad parent. You are not entitled to have other people worship you and bend a knee to you and heap praise upon you simply because of what you do or who you think you are. So then Kyle says, or I'm sorry, Cole says, Cole asked the question, what signs appear when a soldier is reaching his limit? And then Dick says, I noticed that when men are at the edge of their physical endurance, they tend to develop that 1,000-yard stare that you always read about. Tired soldiers will often take off their helmet and run their fingers through their hair. At times, they literally drop their helmets to the ground. This soldier is already losing his self-respect. The battle is half lost. That's a sign. It's a sign for a commander to take immediate action. I didn't wait for the trooper to reach that stage. I proactively looked for these signs. Every soldier wants to do the right thing. You always know the proper thing to do, but doing it is sometimes more difficult. I never wanted a man to lose his self-respect. That's so key. Again, read the body language like he describes. Look at their facial expression. What is, what is the uncommunicated language they're speaking? What are they telling you? Are they losing self-respect? Are they losing themselves in the moment? They're no longer in charge of their faculties. They're not thinking clearly. They're not sober. They're emotionally adrift. They're physically breaking down. What's happening? Because as Dick says, at that point, the battle is already half lost. That's when you have to take immediate action. Not when the battle is lost, not when you're on the precipice of defeat, but rather when it's halfway there. Don't let them reach that stage. Proactively look for the signs. Because you have to recognize, no matter how selfish someone is, no matter how bent over and self-involved, self-centered they may be, no matter what their mental or emotional state or even their physical state, when you watch them walk through the door, or you engage with them, in their heart, they, do, they want to do the right thing. And sometimes, even when they're doing the wrong thing, they convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. Everybody wants to do the right thing. Unless they're psychopaths, they want to do the right thing. So how do you help them get back in the right mindset, get back in the right emotional place, to recover physically so that they can recover their self-respect, their dignity. They can recover their courage, their mental courage, their moral courage, their physical courage. You have to interrupt their cycle of thinking because I've, I've learned this from psychologists over the years, especially when you deal with schizophrenics. But you, you see this also with people just that are mentally ill in general. <coughs> Excuse me. They get caught in a cycle, a circular th th thought process, and they can't break out of that circle. And so they're constantly repeating themselves. And you then have to interrupt that cycle and do it in such a way that it's not violent and abrupt. In a sense, you have to talk them down emotionally from 10 to 6 to 4. You have to de-escalate what's happening in their mind because they're stuck. It's like the record skipping. And 
So what you do then is you engage them, but you have to pay attention to the tone of your voice, your body language, your posture, the words that you choose to use, making eye contact or not, how close you are to them, how distant you are from them. Everything that you communicate through your body language, your facial expressions, and your actual auditory words will determine whether or not you can break this circular thought process and bring them back to reality so they can assess what's happening to themselves and around them soberly or send them spiraling off into even greater levels of violence and hysteria. But what you recognize again is this person's lost in their own thoughts and they can't break loose of this cycle of thinking that they're engaged in. And then the physical manifestation of that is often self-abusive, self-harming, or abusive and harming toward others. And rather than jump on them and tackle them and beat them into submission because they're a threat to themselves and others, you talk them down. You try to de-escalate the conflict with words first. And only if they attack you do you then engage them physically and attempt to subdue them in a way that doesn't hurt them and also doesn't get you hurt. But first and foremost, and in my experience anyways, because I've done this a lot over the last 20 to 30 years, I've never had to physically hurt somebody or subdue someone. I've always been able, praise be to God, to talk someone down, whether it be suicide, self-harm, harming others. They just want to be told that it's going to be okay. They want to be brought back to reality. They want to do the right thing, but they get lost in their thinking. Like I said, that becomes a circle and they just keep chasing their own tail and they can't stop. It becomes manic. Or they get lost emotionally and they can't recover. They can't get back on sure footing emotionally. And all you're doing is coming alongside of them and offering a shoulder to lean on and saying, here, put your arm over my shoulder. I'll put my arm over your shoulder. We'll walk out of this together. Because that's really what they're looking for. They just want someone to let them know that they're not alone. They're not isolated. That they're worthy of attention of compassion and kindness. They just want somebody to look at them and say what they're thinking or what they're feeling so that they know this is reality and this is not reality. And when you get caught in that cycle of thinking or feeling, it's easy to lose track of what's real. And you need someone to come from outside. Just like I said about coaching, you got to recognize these people are locked into a, a cycle of thought and that comes out in their behavior, their body language, the way they stand, the way they look at you, the way they express themselves. And if you can recognize that and not be so self-involved and so focused on what you're getting out of this moment, you, it's very easy, actually, in my opinion. It's very easy to recognize this person's hurting. This person's struggling. This person's falling apart on the inside. And all they really need right now is just to have someone bring them back to reality, to remind them they're valued. They mean something. They're a child of God. They're worthy of love. They're worthy of respect. That you recognize they're just trying to do the right thing. And people get in the way. Our decisions get in the way. Our habits, our choices, they get in the way. The consequences of our decisions get in the way. And they pile up and they weigh us down. And before you know it, you can't remember a time when you weren't weighed down, when you didn't feel heavy and overburdened, when you don't feel unloved and unworthy of respect. 
So you have to be proactive, like Dick says. You have to recognize the signs. You have to recognize the battles half lost and cut it off at the pass and engage them and interface with them in a way that restores their self-respect, restores their sense of right and wrong as it relates to the present reality. So then Cole says, you once told me that married soldiers often hesitated before taking decisive action. Were married soldiers more prone to reach their breaking point? Dick says, I'm glad you asked that question because I was going to say, there is an additional point that I'd like to share that perhaps goes off on a tangent, but I think you'll realize that I have a point. When I observed Easy Company, I found that under fire in combat, whether it's rifle fire or artillery, the men who seemed to have their eyes glazed over quickest and put their heads down and kept their heads down were those who were married. Either they were married or in love or had a fiancé back home. They were the first to show fear. Those who had not fallen in love or who were not engaged seemed to be able to hold on longer. That's perfectly understandable in my opinion. My friend Nixon is a perfect example of what I'm trying to say. How so? Well, not in the way you may think. Nixon and I were polar opposites, but I sensed that we shared mutual feelings and ways of looking at life. I could understand him and help him understand me and understand himself. Nixon had been married, but he had no love at home. I went to his house many times. He would invite not just me, but he would invite a group of officers and company to his home on weekends. What I'm saying is, not from just what he told me, but from what I was able to observe of his married life, there was no love. Nixon did not have that burden of fear of not going back to his wife. As I think back and I put it together and compared our two lives, how different we were, yet how similar we were in many ways, Nixon did not have this burden in combat, and I didn't either. It's an interesting point. Because you read about Thermopylae, you read about the Spartans, the men that were chosen for the 300 had wives and children, they had families, because the attitude was, the philosophy was, if they have something to fight for, they'll fight to the death. Whereas here, Dick is pointing out, Dick Winters is pointing out that those who had something back home to go home to were the ones that he noted were the ones that hid they were the ones who stuck, got their head down and kept it down because they wanted to get back home. They wanted to go back to their loved ones. They needed that. They needed to survive. And they were going to do anything they had to to get home. Whereas with the Spartans, it was the opposite. We have to stop the Persians. We have to stop this invading army from reaching our gates because then they're going to take our women and children. They're going to kill them. They're going to enslave them. And so those men that are married with children, that have the city at their backs, they will fight to the death to protect what's theirs. Whereas this is, they would just want to get home. So you can see over the centuries how that changed. But that's not to say then that there weren't Spartan warriors who were just as scared as these paratroopers in World War II. It's just that they're not written about in history. Or more to the point, they're shoulder to shoulder with their comrades in arms and they're going to move forward. They're going to hold the line. And anybody who tries to run is going to be, well, probably 
chopped down, cut down. Because as we've read about before from the warrior ethos uh, by Pressfield, the famous saying of the Spartan women was, come home with your shield or on it. Meaning you either win the victory and you come home and receive the accolades or you die. But if you come home without your shield, if you come home in defeat because you ran away, you surrendered, you lost the fight and you didn't die in the fight, that's to your shame, it's to our shame. You've bring, you brought shame upon our nation. That's what we're experiencing right now in the United States with the Afghanistan withdrawal. Is that those who fought, those who stepped up, those who went there to do their duty, those who died and are buried there. What happened with the Afghan withdrawal is to our shame, to the shame of our nation, to the shame of those who fought and died and sacrificed and those who got home. The soldiers fought. They did their duty. They were brave. They were courageous. They did what they had to do. And then the politicians did what they do, which is save their own political necks. If there's no money in it for them, they're going to withdraw. If people get killed, if people are collateral damage, they don't care. They don't have a son or a daughter in the war. They've never been soldiers. They don't understand esprit de corps. They don't understand what it means to a soldier to run away, to, to withdraw in a way that's non-strategic. It's cowardice. It's the cowardice of politics. It's disgusting and it's shameful. And it makes me sick. Not because of the way that it was done. It makes me sick because of friends that I have who are veterans and watching their struggle, watching their guilt, their shame, their hearts break, listening to their questions. What were we there for? Did we really accomplish anything? We went in there to get out the Taliban, and when we left, the Taliban was in charge. All of these questions, all of these thoughts have been expressed to me. And so my heart breaks for them, not in an abstract or generalized way, but in a very real interpersonal way. These are warriors. These are soldiers. These are men and women who did their duty, who buried brothers and sisters on the battlefield. And then they have politicians basically shit all over their service and their sacrifice. That's what cowards do. And so I understand Dick's point. I understand the Spartan point from both sides. But I think too, to bring it back to a more personal level, if you don't have anything worth fighting for, what are you fighting for? Or more specifically, who? Because I think there's a difference between what you fight for and who you fight for. The what of, of fighting, the what of surviving, that's one thing. What am I surviving for? What am I doing this for? Usually myself. If I don't have anybody that I love, if I don't have external relationships, if I don't have anyone, the who part of this, who I'm willing to sacrifice for, who I'm willing to die for, why am I doing it? Personal conviction, internal motivation, the, a greater cause, a higher good. I can only speak for myself, but 
I know why I fight. I know why I discipline my body and my mind and my emotions day after day after day. Why I train through injuries, why I fight through fear, why I push myself to be better than I can imagine myself being. And it's not for me, not anymore. It's for my wife, it's for my children. It's for the people that depend on me to show up for them. But specifically, it's for my wife and my children, who I love more than anyone else and anything else in the world. And I want to know that if and when the moment comes, I'm prepared. I'm trained up to protect and defend them. And so the reason that I push myself like a maniac sometimes, the reason I'm so committed to what I do and why other people can't understand that is because I have a who that's attached to my why. Why do I do this? For them. What am I doing? I'm doing everything that I can to prepare myself to be a defender and protector for my family. So I need to do what is necessary, what is needful to protect and defend my family. For you, it may be another person or another thing. And I'm not saying that you can't have a what that you're willing to die for either. I think to each his own, to each her own. But for myself anyways, reflecting on what Dick says, when someone threatens my, my kids, for example, I take that personally, obviously, because I love them. And I don't care how big you are. I don't care how dangerous or lethal you may be. I will throw myself at you to protect my children. Even if it means that I'm going to get the living shit beat out of me, I'll do it for the sake of my children. Even if it means that maybe I don't walk away from this, I'll still do it for the sake of my children. It's not a question of whether or not I will or will not do it. It's what's necessary. It's needful. Because my children are more important to me than my own life. And because I have that who, I have that love for them, that overwhelming, unconditional love that is limitless and measureless, I'm willing to do anything to protect and defend them. From evil, from malevolence, from those who would try to hurt and harm them, manipulate and control them. And maybe that's at heart what's wrong with our society, why it's ruled by fear and insecurity, why we essentially witness this death cult dominate our society's thinking and actions on a daily basis. Our society is so focused on escaping pain and living a life of leisure and comfort. They're so busy avoiding death that they don't even notice or recognize that they're not living. They're simply existing. Because what are they living for? Everybody can tell you that they're afraid of dying. But how many people that you know can tell you what they live for? And it can't be things. It can't be abstractions. It can't be generalities. It can't be personal philosophies. I don't care if you're a Stoic or a Nietzschean. I don't care if you're dedicated to planting trees or paving the earth. I don't care if you're pro-vaccinations or anti-vaccinations. Those are things. Those are causes. Those are movements. Those are ideas. But who are you fighting for? Who are you willing to die for? Who are you willing to put your life down so that they may walk away and live? And it can't be somebody on the other side of the world that you've never met before. That's an abstraction. That's a generalization. That's an imaginary figure to you. I mean, right in front of you, 
Who is right in front of you that you are willing to sacrifice everything for because their well-being takes precedent over yours? Who is that person in your life? Who are those people? And if you don't know who it is, if you don't know who he or she is, who they are, maybe that's something to take away from this episode. Go find those people. Go find that person. Locate them and recognize this person, these people, they matter. They matter a lot. They matter more than your own life. And then ask yourself, are they worthy of that loyalty? Are they worthy of your fidelity to them? And if not, find someone else to live for. Find someone else to sacrifice and die for. Because I think that's what's missing. I don't hear about that. I don't see the esprit de corps in our communities and our society. I don't see people living for other people. I see people living for themselves and then aligning themselves, allying themselves with people that share the same mentality, the same ideology. But as far as sacrificing yourself for the greater good, I get that. Sure, that's always in the part of the conversation. But I'd rather sacrifice myself for my children because they're real, they're tangible, they're concrete. They're a walking manifestation of my love. And I think each of us needs that in order to rise above the fear and the insecurity and the stress of the present moment. To find that who that attaches to the why. Why do you need this? Why are you doing this? Well, it's for them. It's for him. It's for her. That way you have something to go home to. You have a reason to go home. So I get Dick's point. I just disagree with it. But I don't think he's wrong. I just disagree. So to continue now, in Lord Moran's The Anatomy of Courage, he addresses what he calls the care and management of fear. He states that he developed the habit of watching for signs of wear and tear so that he might rest a soldier before he was broken. How did you break the cycle of fear, Dick? Who's Lord Moran? I've never heard of him. Lord Moran was Winston Churchill's personal physician during World War II. As Captain Charles Wilson, Moran served as a doctor with the Royal Fusiliers throughout two and a half years of World War I. In later life, Wilson, ennobled as Lord Moran, witnessed the pressures of high command as a member of Churchill's entourage. The Anatomy of Courage records Moran's experience and leads to his interpretation of courage and battle. According to Moran, fear is more common than courage. Dick says, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. So Cole continues, Moran states that there are four degrees of courage and four orders of men measured by that standard. Men who do not feel fear. Men who feel fear but do not show it. Men who feel fear and show it but do their job anyway. And men who feel fear, show it, and shirk. His experience during the Great War demonstrated that soldiers rarely fell into a single category and moved constantly up and down the ladder of fear. Moran goes on to say that modern war is concerned with the striving of men, eroded by fear, to maintain a precarious footing on the upper rungs of the ladder. So then Dick says, that's very interesting. Sorry to interrupt. Now, what's your question? And Cole says, I asked how you broke the cycle of fear. And Dick Winters says, that's right. As I said, when you notice a soldier literally falling apart before your eyes, you try to provide him some relief. I can think of two cases that illustrate what I'm saying. 
At Carrington, Carrington, one week after D-Day, I was standing in the aid station when I observed Private Albert Blythe leaning against the wall. I asked him what was wrong, and he replied that he could not see. He was blinded by fear. I merely put my hand on his shoulder and told him everything would be okay. That's all it took. He looked at me and said, I can see. I'm okay now. Sometimes all you need to hear is a calming voice to shake you from despair. Exactly what I was just talking about. The second case involves Joe Liebgott at Bastogne. I noticed that his nerves were frayed, so I pulled him from the front line and assigned him duty as my battalion runner for a day or two. A day's rest from the front lines will literally accomplish wonders for a soldier's morale. A good soldier does not want to stay away from his buddies too long. He certainly prefers their company to yours. After two days, he will request to join his buddies at the front. As with Blythe and Liebgott, they were very anxious to return to the front. And then Dick goes on, Sometimes you have to take more drastic action if a leader is involved. I already told you the circumstances surrounding Lieutenant Dyke during the attack of Foy outside of Bastogne. What I had just witnessed was a classic case of combat fatigue at a very bad time. We had seen indications of this earlier, but Dyke was sent to us as a favorite protege of somebody from regimental headquarters, and our hands were tied. Fortunately, Colonel Sink approved my action of replacing Dyke with Captain Spears. Wishing to explore combat exhaustion, I redirected our conversation back to the Battle of the Bulge. Speaking of Bastogne, I'm thinking about January 9th, 1945, when many of your leaders succumbed to pressure as the battalion broke out from its encirclement. One of your lieutenants literally walked off the line, and then you relieved a company commander during the attack on Foy on January. The strain must have been enormous. Before you go on, I know you think I'm too hard on Lieutenant Compton for walking off the line at Bastogne. Let me explain myself. Buck was a great combat leader. He was a superb platoon leader in Normandy and Holland. In fact, I would say he was one of the best. At Bastogne, he broke after some of his friends were seriously wounded in the constant artillery barrages. There is a danger of getting too close to the men, and Buck crossed that line. When you see your friends get maimed, it makes it more difficult to go on. That's why I always maintained a certain detachment from the paratroopers in Easy Company. Am I too harsh on Buck? Maybe. But a leader needs to rise above fear. The easiest thing to do is quit. So then Cole asks, why didn't you quit? Why didn't you crack? And Dick says, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch. I don't quit. I made a commitment Moral courage is based on physical fitness. Courage is a combination of willpower and determination. <laughs> there it is. Moral courage is based on physical fitness. I can attest to this for myself personally. Maybe you can too. Moral courage is based on physical fitness. Courage is a combination of willpower and determination. To be physically fit, to be physically in shape, to have good karma, good karma, good stamina and cardio. There we go. You know, if you combine cardio and stamina, you come up with karma, I guess. Cardio and stamina 
when you have that, you have good cardio, you have good stamina, you're physically fit, you're strong. It gives you a sense of confidence. It allows you to be a disciplined person. It allows you to maintain a certain amount of sanity and sobriety in the midst of any conflict because you know physically you're ready, you've trained up, you're prepared. You can react to the situation. You can adapt in the moment because physically you're fit. And that physical fitness allows you again to be mentally and emotionally strong because you're not worried about whether your body is going to break down or not in the moment. So you don't have to worry about that. And because of that confidence you get from being physically fit, it allows you then to express yourself, to move forward courageously, to move through the fear, to rise above the fear. For myself, anyways, just speaking anecdotally, I became a much more assertive person in a kind and a compassionate way after I started jujitsu and Muay Thai. Once I became physically fit and from that mentally and emotionally stronger, it was much easier for me to this day to express what I believe is right and wrong to people. To say to another person, don't do that. I don't agree with that. That's disrespectful. That's condescending. That's demeaning to that person. Quit doing that. Why? Because I know that I'm physically equipped to deal with whatever comes back at me. And I know I'm intellectually and emotionally fit to deal with whatever comes back at me because I've been tested. I've been refined in the fires of conflict and violence and training. The physical strain and stress of beating my body into shape. And knowing how to defend myself puts me in a position to be able to express myself honestly with other people without fear of what's coming back at me. As I've said countless times to people, I've been punched and kicked in the face by people that outweigh me by 100 pounds and I didn't get knocked out. That gives you a very strong sense of, of confidence in the world when you know I can take a hit. And because I've been hit, I'm not afraid of getting hit. And that sets me free from the worry and anxiety of being hit by another person because I know I got hit by a trained fighter, a professional, and you're not that. So whatever you throw at me ain't going to hurt half as bad as that. Likewise, I've been taken down. I've been held down against my will. I've had other people enforce their will upon me and defeat me in fights. I've been through it. I've been under 300-pound men. I'm 180 pounds. I was able to get out from underneath them and submit them. If I can do that with a 300-pound man and you're relatively the same size as me, why am I scared of you? What do I have to be insecure about in relation to you? I know I can take a punch. I know I can withstand you getting on top of me and get out from underneath you. It lends itself to a sense of confidence and courage to move forward because you know what you're capable of. You know what you can withstand. You know the type of stress that you can suffer. You know that you can compartmentalize pain and stress. It's freeing. It's liberating. And it sets you free to express yourself, to move through the fear, to express moral courage, to say, that's not right. We're not going to accept that. We're not going to tolerate that in our presence. It strengthens your willpower. 
because you've gone through those stressful situations. You've been put to the test. You've been refined in the fires of conflict. And you've walked out the other side. So now you're a more determined person. You have stronger will. You can withstand more stress and anxiety. You can walk through greater fear and terror. Because you've been put to the test before that. You've trained up to this point. And then once you walk through that fear and you overcome that fear, the next time you encounter fear, it either has to be greater than the fear you just moved through. Otherwise, you're going to blow right through it because you're like, yeah, I've been here before. I'm familiar. I know what's going to happen here. I know what to expect. I can anticipate what's coming because I've been here before. It's not that scary. Or even if it is scary, you know the way through it. You know how to rise above it. So you simply engage it, defeat it, overcome it, and move on. But if you haven't been put to the test, if you're not physically fit, then you're not emotionally and intellectually fit, the moment will overwhelm you. You will be crushed by it. And you will discover that you don't really have that grade of determination. You don't really have that grade of willpower. It's only by constantly putting yourself to new and more challenging tests like David Goggins is constantly talking about. It's that, that's how you grow and improve. That's how you get stronger. You, you discover a well of determination and willpower in yourself that you didn't even know was there. And then once you tap into that, oh, oh it's so tasty. It's, it's so refreshing. It's like an aquifer. That's why people get addicted to jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai. It's the intangibles that you get addicted to, not just the training. It's walking out of the gym, getting out of the ring, getting out of the cage. And then you, you realize, I just overcame myself. I just overcame fear and anxiety and stress. I'm stronger physically than I was when I walked in. I'm mentally stronger. I'm emotionally stronger. My willpower, my determination, my courage is bubbling up and overflowing. My cup runneth over with courage. But in my experience, and to Dick's point, it's only by putting yourself through the physical stress, the challenge to discover who you are and have your true self revealed to you that you will discover that well of determination, willpower, and courage so that you can rise above the fear when it comes. And like I've talked about before, no one's immune to fear. I don't care who you are. It's just a matter of how you respond to it and how you engage it. I've been crippled by it. I've been eaten alive by it. I've moved through it, pushed through it, overcome it, backslid into it. Like he says, when we're talking about Lord Moran, there's four different kinds of fear and all of us experience all four of them at different points. They're always there. So you can either get to know them and make friends with them or they're just going to be those bratty kids that are always throwing rocks at your windows. So I'll wrap it up there because we're at an hour, but this is good stuff. I'll include a link to the book. It's an interesting series of conversations. Each chapter is a conversation on a different topic. Like I said, this chapter is on courage, but he's got other chapters in the book that are not just on courage, but on leadership, on friendship, on character. He's got war stories in here. He talks about his wife. He talks about you know growing old and his legacy. It's a great little book. It's a nice companion piece to Band of Brothers, if you haven't read that I definitely recommend you read it and or go watch the series, which is available on Amazon Prime, I think. 
can't remember, but I watch it on Amazon Prime. So that being said, as always, thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Thank you for your encouragement, your DMs. If you want to get a hold of me, you can message me on Instagram. You can send me an email through um, Anchor FM, through the Warrior Priest Podcast at Anchor FM. Otherwise, I will talk to you. Well, actually, I'll be preaching at you on Sunday for Sermon Mission Sunday. And I'll talk to you again next week, God willing, for a brand new episode. See you later, space monkeys. Peace.